And uh, welcome to what might be the short... Nah, I'm not even going to say it. Uh, this probably won't be the shortest episode of, uh, of X-Lapsed. Uh, I was wrong both times I said that, so I won't, I'll won't. i try not to say that again. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing Marauders number 3. This is, of course, episode 26. Uh, now, Marauders kind of fell down my charts last, uh, last time out here. The second issues, I put it closer to the bottom than I did the top, I believe, which... It was quite a precipitous drop, considering that I had it teeter-tottering in the number one or number two spot during the uh, the first issues. So this will be an interesting one to see if it uh, you know starts crawling back up or if it you know if it's still something I can't glom onto. But uh, without any further ado, let's hop right in. This is Marauders number three. Uh, had a February 2020 cover date. The story is called The Bishop in Black. Written by Jerry Duggan, we have uh, some new artists here. Pencils by Michelle Bandini, uh, inks by Bandini and Elisabetta D'Amico. Easy for me to say, uh, just like every other name, I guess. Uh, colors by Federico Blee, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman, edits uh, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price $3.99. This one went on sale December 4th, 2019. And we open in flashback land, though it isn't made abundantly clear at the outset. We're at Hellfire Bay, and we see the three colorful royal keeps. We have the red keep, you know, with a red throne. Uh, Blackstone, where Sebastian hangs out, and the white palace, where we would assume Emma hangs out. And they all have pretty cool designs here. I like the, I like the look here of Hellfire Bay. We get a full page of it. It's kind of like a crescent with an island in the middle of it. And uh, on the island is Blackstone, and uh, you have the Red Keep and the White Palace on either end of the crescent, or either tip of the crescent, I should say. Really cool design. I I like it a lot. Uh, Here we meet our narrator, and he is Sebastian Shaw. Now, after waving to some youngins, he steps through a portal and arrives at his destination, which uh, we'll see after our requisite double-page spread of creds and our roll call. So let's meet the folks who will make this issue. We got Sebastian Shaw. We got our old friend GB, Goldball's Egg. Uh, Professor X, Pyro, and Shinobi Shaw. Wasn't I just making jokes about him last episode? I thought I was making jokes about Shinobi last episode, but and, and here he is. He's like, uh, you know, one of those things you don't want to say in the mirror in a dark room. Uh, turns out, when we get back to the comics here, Sebastian's destination is... That really disgusting hatchery. And before him stands the five. And of course the five is Hope Summers, Egg, Proteus, Tempest, Elixir, and we have Professor X watching everybody uh, do their thing here. So yeah, this is uh, very much 
a flashback. So this comes before X-Force number one. Now, Shaw wants some assurances about their next resurrection. He wants it to be, in his words, complete. Egg decides to point over to their latest resurrectee, Pyro, as proof of their abilities. So yes, this is a flashback. Pyro does not have the Punisher's skull emblazoned on his face just yet. And he's, you know, just a brand new pup. Now, Pyro, unfortunately, doesn't appear to be the best specimen at present. It looks like the first thing he did upon being reborn was get drunk. Well, this is an issue of a Marauders, so uh, somebody's got to get drunk, right? And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, we're not seeing much of Kitty this time. So somebody else is going to have to tip the bottle, and it'll be Pyro this time. So we see him wobbling around in a wheelchair, waving like a buffoon. He's very, very... I don't, know, I don't know how to say that he's happy to be there, but he's, uh, he's happy to feel no pain, I'm guessing. Suddenly, a golden egg hatches, and from it plops... Well, hello there, Shinobi Shaw. He immediately recognizes his father, who tells him that a lot has changed in a very short period of time. Shinobi asks how he got here, to which Shaw pictures a skeleton with its own hand lodged in its skull lying in a casket. I am going to assume that this happened within the past couple of years because I don't remember a lick of it. I don't remember this happening. Um, honestly, uh, I don't think... I, I didn't think we'd seen much of Shinobi since, like, the upstart days. Uh, so <laughs> anything on this side of the year 2000 is uh, will be new to me for Shinobi, sure. Anyway, Shaw Sebastian says he'll tell Shaw Shinobi everything later on. From here, we jump to that culty scene where Storm, you know, usually stands before the throngs and has them chant mutant at her in her direction as they pump their fists. Uh, we don't actually see Storm, though. Uh, despite her being on the cover, she's not in the damn book. Uh, it actually looks like a bald fella is asking for, like, the vocal proof of Shinobi being Shinobi and Shinobi being a mutant. Uh, Shinobi responds by saying, hey, I still want to kill my dad, and that is his proof. Pyro, who still seems quite out of it, raucously cheers for our boy. He is a Shaw and a mutant, damn it, and he's uh, very proud. From here, we follow the Shaws back to Blackstone, where the Elder shares a bit of the skinny on this new Krakoan landscape. Once inside, he sends Shinobi into the next room to change into his, uh, his new clothes, his very red duds. Hmm, okay, so that was his plan. He continues talking. Sebastian loves to talk. Uh, makes me very glad that I'm not voice acting this issue, and uh, you should be glad about that too. <laughs> now, he talks about the Hellfire Corporation and the treaties and the whole shebang, the black market, yada, 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 yada. Yada. The Shaws then step through another portal and arrive in Central Park. Once there, they're hassled, well, maybe not so much hassled, but they're attended to by the New York Police Department, who have the Central Park Krakoan Gate well-guarded just to keep the looky-loos away. Once past the checkpoint, the Shaws are approached by some goofballs in ex-hoodies. Uh, the Shaws use a tandem offense to blow them away. Sebastian explains that many cults have risen of late. Some of them are pro-mutant, some are anti-mutant. The, the pair stop at a fancy eatery to continue their chat. Sebastian talks Frost and how she begged him to come back. Shinobi changes the subject, which I really can't blame him for. I'm sure Sebastian talks about Emma Frost a awful lot. Um, so Shinobi thinks out loud. He's, uh, he wonders whether or not he still wants to kill his father. To which, Sebastian smiles and asks if he thinks he even can. Shinobi says that's something he'll 
you know, he'll continue to ponder on his flight to Tokyo. Well, kid, you don't need planes anymore. Because lickety-split, the Shoahs emerge from another portal and arrive in Tokyo. Shinobi breaks away to attend to some business and tells his father that they'll revisit their discussion in a couple days. Now, this business Shinobi must attend to involves retrieving his sword. So yes, another sword. He meets with an old master who's pretty surprised to see him. He assumes Shinobi went into hiding to get out of paying his debts. Either that or he was dead, but, I mean, clearly he's not dead. He's here. He's alive. Uh, From here, an info page from the X-Desk. This page is the uh, first bit of the issue that isn't squarely framed in flashback land. Uh, This one isn't all that interesting as the first, um, but it does include a second text-only page, which is a transcription of a text message between Kitty and Bishop. In it, she asks him to be her red bishop. He turns it down. At the end of the thread, though, Bishop reminds Kitty to to destroy her unsecured burner phone and that they're going to need new ones for T, who or whatever T might be. We rejoin comics content, and we are in the present. Shinobi returns from Japan, and he and Sebastian try to move on from their past conflicts. The Elder Shaw says he just witnessed Xavier and Apocalypse shaking hands, which says to him that anything is possible. He also tells his son that uh, their, quote, red ambition didn't quite pay off, uh, but he still has a, he's still got an accolade that he can give his son. It involves the color black, naturally. Though, he does caution Shinobi not to discard his red suit just yet, as, you know, anything, anything can happen. Sebastian then takes Shinobi out to the bay to show him his rig. It's the, uh, the Black Bishop's ship. Together, they will bleed the humans dry with their miracle drug trade. Now, before we close out, Shinobi asks if Sebastian knows how he died. The Elder confirms that he does, and we see a scene of Shinobi with his own hand phased through his own head. Which, again, I, I don't remember, so I'm going to assume this was a... probably a very recent thing. Um, probably post-Blue and Gold. You know, X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold, probably, maybe in that vo- those volumes. Um, Now, we wrap up the issue with Sebastian telling Shinobi that it was the Red and White Queens that conspired to kill him. So he's he's building allies and making enemies here. Our our blurb for the next issue of Marauders says that we're going to meet the Red Bishop. Whether or not that's actually Bishop, I guess we'll find out. But our next episode will be discussing Excalibur number three. But... How about we talk about this? Let's uh, let's gather our thoughts here and see what we thought of Marauders number three. I guess I can start by saying, and we're back. <laughs> you know, uh, after not really caring for the second issue, I w- I very much enjoyed this one. Um, I'll concede that it was quite odd that we didn't even like get a visual on Call Me Kate. All we got was her text messages. Uh, but with how annoying I found her the last time around, I can't say that I missed her all that much. Um, and, I mean, we still had Pyro kicking around being the drunken goof this time anyway, so, yeah. Uh, I mentioned in the last episode, um, when we discussed uh, X-Men number three, that uh, the coolest thing about Sh- Sebastian Shaw to me growing up was the fact that he had a son named Shinobi. I don't quite remember Shinobi being such a... I don't know, like a, like a weak ineffectual, <laughs> as he's being portrayed here. Uh, though... In fairness, much of my Shinobi Shaw references informed by the very early 1990s, so... 
Um, question for the uh, for the for the folks here: ha- Has he been kicking around the X universe of late? Um, I I could have sworn like he did the upstarts thing back in like '91, and then just kind of went away. I mean, I know. I know there was an issue of Volume 2, probably in the 30s, where Archangel and Psylocke went to a Hellfire Club party. He might have been there, but I don't remember... I don't remember much more. Um, I remember thinking he was a pretty cool character for the few times I actually recall seeing him. Uh, though, <laughs> when I, every time I saw him, I wasn't sure if it was him or that Matsu Tsuriaba, who was uh, screwing with Wolverine at the time. They, had the, they all had the same haircut. Um... I think the thing about Shinobi that I liked the most was probably the you know the trappings of the upstarts as a concept. Um, I really feel as though they could have done so much more with the upstarts. If you think about it, I mean it's such a potentially rich concept. You got like a group of rich kids and misfits hunting mutants for points. You know they're actually killing mutants to to gain points and beat each other. Imagine if they actually let them kill a couple of notables, you know? Um, I'm trying to think of who they actually killed that might have stuck. And, uh, of course, bef- you know, pre-resurrection. I mean, did Beef ever come back? The Hellion Beef? <laughs> I know they killed him. I know Trevor Fitzroy killed him. Uh, I know they killed Taro, but she came back. Um, they did, they, 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 you know, they were pretty, pretty well jobbed out. Um, I, I know back then, you know, when they launched, you know, the revolution, the, uh, what are, what are they, the mutant genesis in 1991, they brought John Byrne back, you know, he re- he returned to do some scripting for the flagship books, you know, Uncanny and Volume 2, he stuck around for like a month or two, but, uh, at that point, his primary objective, he, uh, he had an interview in Wizard Magazine, he said that he wanted to have another mutant massacre, because in his words, get this, he felt that a couple of dozen mutants in the Marvel Universe were too many. So, uh, just you wait, pal. Uh, you know, the upstarts, um, I don't know if folks remember Marville. If anybody remembers Marville and uh, isn't cringing right now, uh, Marville was something that was written by Bill Jemis, who was part of the uh, You Decide initiative, where uh, Peter David... Um, Joe Casada and uh, Bill Jemis, the president of Marvel at the time, or whatever the, whatever the hell his actual job was, they had a contest where they wanted to outsell each other in, in you know, in, in the sales chart, you know. Uh, Peter David's whole gimmick was he was going to write a good story. Bill Jemis was just going to be eye-poppingly insane, and Joe Casada was going to launch another Ultimate book. And... Uh, the book that Jemis put out was called Marville, and it was basically his soapbox and sounding board to bitch and complain about everybody he didn't like, which was a lot of people, it turned out. What I'm trying to get at here is the final issue of Marville was issue 7, and in it, they announced that they were bringing back the concept of epic comics. You know, the old creator-owned line of, of Marvel... Uh, the creator-owned line through Marvel back in the 80s. You had, like, you know, ElfQuest, Grew the Wanderer, um, I think Alien Legion. You had a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of... Uh, the Boz Chronicles. A bunch of interesting stuff. But uh, they were going to bring it back. Uh, this is probably right around the turn of the century. And in this... Uh, th- this seventh issue of Marvel is basically... I mean, it's not basically. It, it exactly is... Just what you need to do to pitch for epic comics. There was no comic story in this. It was all 
this is what you need to do if you want to have, you know, a book uh, for Marvel's new epic line, which lasted like three issues. But uh, I remember really getting this, uh, this like wild hair to do an upstart story. I wanted to pitch an ups- an upstart story, but uh, uh, you know, I, how are you gonna do that though? You, you you need to kill some people if you you know you need to kill some mutants if you're going to uh, launch that and have it actually mean something. But uh, I I just thought it would be the coolest thing to have an upstarts book. Don't even call it upstarts. Make that like the big reveal at the end. You know, in the vein of Thunderbolts. You know, just have have like a group of uh, nobodies or misfits just follow around some B-list mutant, and at the end of the first issue, they kill it, and then they tally their points, and it's like, oh boy, the upstarts are back. But I just love the idea. I love the idea. I wish they did more with it. I'd love to see it again. I would love to see it back. Speaking of back, let's get back to this issue before I uh, (laughs) keep going. Um, I appreciated Sebastian eyeing the Red Throne for his son. And I figure... That's kind of multi-layered, you know. We could we could look at that in a number of different ways here. Uh, first of all, and probably most obvious, Shinobi could potentially be an ally, you know, to outnumber Frost, or at the very least, have a little bit more veto power if such a thing exists in Hellfire world. Uh, second, I mean, we see the way that Shinobi died and how that seems to have really gotten under Sebastian's skin. No pun intended. Uh, perhaps this would be like a make good sort of a thing for the Shaws, you know. They can they can work together and put the past behind them. Whatever the case, it made sense to me, and it made for a pretty good read. It made for a really good read. I enjoyed it. Uh, Pyro is a tipsy newborn. Uh, like I said before, it wouldn't be an issue of Marauders unless someone's getting a little buzzed, right? Um, one more time, I hate to say it, but I kind of see the lack of Kitty in this issue as a pro rather than a con. I, I don't know if I'm in the minority. I assume. I assume I'm in the minority, but at this moment, I really can't stand her. Uh, hopefully, I'll come around to her sooner than later. Um, maybe we just need to, uh, you know, knock some of the uh, knock some of my rust off before I can uh, fully get get you know, get into this character and this new take on her. Now, from the final blurb in the book, it looks as though we're going to be doing a little bit more team building next issue. We're going to be introducing the Red Bishop, and that, that's totally fine with me. I am. A complete sucker for world building and, uh, you know, getting pieces into place. So, yeah, I can go on that ride. That's a, that's a good thing for me. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, this was definitely, to me, a much stronger issue than last. Um, mostly because I wasn't, you know, cringing the entire time. And just was really, really annoyed. But uh, looking forward to the next issue. I'm happy that this is uh, back on my, on my good side. Or I'm back on its good side. I don't know. But uh, before we uh, before we uh, head off for the day, I'll just uh, do one piece of uh, feedback here. This is uh, from Damien, and he's talking about New Mutants number two. He says, I'm continuing to love the podcast. Thanks again for the feedback. I love hearing the stories of people's fandom. I don't think the attempt to own firsts is a particularly Wizard-era thing. I know my early back-issue purchases were all about getting those firsts. My first one my first one was tracking down Uncanny X-Men number 185, which features Storm losing her powers. I sought that issue out because of the footnotes in Uncanny, um, Uncanny X-Men number 220. I spent two pounds on that issue at that point, where new comics were 50p. My second one was, appropriately, Marvel graphic novel number four, which featured the New Mutants. And, uh, yes, that's some of my very favorite parts of um, being part... 
as as much as a vestigial limb as I am to the uh, po- comics podcasting community, I, I still think of myself as sort of kind of a part of it. But uh, some of my favorite parts of interacting with folks is learning, you know, their secret origins, you know, their comic secret origins, and uh, finding out what what books resonated most to them, what jumped off what jumped off the racks to them. Uh, what was their thought process in, you know, what, what, why did they pick certain things to collect? And I love those stories, and that's a, that's a lot of what I talk about on, uh, on, on various other programs on this, uh, on this channel. Um, and I'm trying to think about my first, like, you know, back issue, back issues. You know, not like just stuff that was a couple months old that I missed out on, but like things that were more than a few years old. You know what things I really wanted to track down, and uh, and and the one I'm thinking here. I mean, outside of things like ElfQuest, which I started far, far late. You know, I started collecting the Marvel Epic run of ElfQuest in probably 1989, 1990, which was you know a few years after it was over. So those were old. But for superheroes, I'm thinking that my first. You know, back issue, back issues were probably the earliest issues of X Factor, uh, mostly because uh, I was shocked when I realized that X Factor was like on issue number eighty when I started reading it. I assumed that it was a brand new book, like X Force and X Men Volume Two. I thought it was going to be like issue, you know, twelve, but it was issue like eighty-one. I was like, where? What was this all about? And then, you know, I did a little bit of uh, research, and, and research when in 1992 is basically flipping through the back issue bin uh, at all the books you can't afford just to see what ha- what the other covers looked like, right? And uh, I decided that X Factor was going to be like the book I collected because um, it was cheap. It was, For whatever reason, I mean, I could look at an issue. Um, I, I know the reasons, but... Uh, it was interesting to me that like a book that was only a couple months old in X-Force or X-Men Volume 2, when it goes in the back issue bin, it was going up from a dollar cover price to four bucks, five bucks in the bins. For whatever reason, X-Factor, if I went back to like X-Factor number two, it would be in the bin for two dollars. It's like, well, I could do that. You know, I, I, that, that works for me. And I remember the first time I saw X-Factor number one. It was at a mall convention, and uh, a mall convention is basically exactly what it sounds like. I've talked about these on other shows, but uh, like the interior part of the mall, like where you do all your walking and stuff to go to from one store to the other, it would be loaded up with you know folding tables, and all the dealers and and retailers from the the area would all come to this mall and they would sell their goods. And the first time I ever saw um, X Factor number one was at a mall con. My my parents were doing food shopping at the Pathmark, and uh, I was uh, I was given you know five bucks and said, hey, you know, go play, you know, go walk around the go walk around and buy some stuff. And I found X Factor number one for five dollars, and I thought I was you know the man, you know, buying X Factor number one because. It was, you know, a number one from the 80s, and oh man, it, I was I was hot stuff, you know? <laughs> I thought I was the coolest person. I, I I bought the thing. I couldn't wait to go to school that the next, the next Monday to tell my friends that I got X-Factor number one. Oh man, and uh, 
I mean, that that's just the book that I started collecting. And uh, I mean, even like X-Factor number five and number six, the, the cameo and the first appearance of Apocalypse, those were in the bins for two or three bucks. Nobody cared because it was X-Factor. It wasn't, you know, Rob Leefield, man. It was, you know, a Simonson. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't. It didn't so much matter to the uh, to the speculator market. So, those early issues of X Factor were the first ones I tracked down. And uh, the funny thing about that is, considering that X Factor was going to be the the series that I collected, the one that I wanted to get a full run of, it actually turned out being like the last um, the last series that I got a full run of. And. Uh, it was X-Factor number 24, the one with Archangel on the cover. It's part of the Fall of the Mutants. I saw that in a 50-cent bin, and I didn't buy it because I thought I had it. And then I went home, and I looked on my Excel spreadsheet and realized I didn't have it, and I went back to the same store, drove about a half hour the next day, and it was gone. And uh, I could not track this issue down for the life of me. And uh, everywhere I saw it, it was... Like 20, 30, 50 bucks. And after seeing it for in a 50 cent bin, I just I couldn't let myself pay more than that for it. Um, it became like this like weird principled thing. And that's another thing I've talked about on other shows. I have very, very strict rules for collecting comics. I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of a pain in the ass about it. But uh, I couldn't let myself pay, you know, big time folding money. For this issue And uh, it would take me Probably five or six years Of uh, Going anywhere I could that I thought they might have comics If it was a record store An antique store Anywhere where they had a And it it kills me to say it A quote unquote geek section I hate that word but I'll say it because people understand what it means Any store that had one of those sections I would go into in hopes that I would find X-Factor number 24, flea markets, anywhere. And I finally found it at a record store, and I paid $1 for it. (laughs) So I I made out okay, I think. But uh, yeah, those uh, those stories of collecting and the stories of falling in love with certain um, franchises and runs and and characters, those those are the stories that keep me coming back. You know, that's that's some of my very favorite stuff. But back to Damien's email. He says, like you, I enjoyed this issue. And again, in case you forgot, we're talking about New Mutants number two. I I know I went off on a very, very long tangent, but we we are still talking about New Mutants number two. Uh, I love the group hug you focused on, but my favorite touch was that Rain stays in the hug for two panels more than the other New Mutants. It takes me right back to the fall of the mutants and Sam saying he would adopt Rain as a younger sister when she was distraught after Doug's death. Excellent point. I had to actually open up the book and look because I I wasn't paying quite as much attention to Rain, um, which is another interesting thing about uh, the generations of fandom because... I guess that might speak to which of these team members feel more like, quote-unquote, mine. I mean, we have this team of New Mutants that has some Generation X members on it, which I always pay more attention to them because those were my cohort. So I think that's a, that's pretty interesting. But I, I do, upon, you know, reflection and seeing that Rain remained, uh, how can you not love that? That's, that's just, that's perfect. Perfect stuff. Um... Back to Damien, he says, 
Hickman very cleverly centered the rela- on relationships so he could do all of his sci-fi stuff without losing us. Yeah, 100%. Because <laughs> if this was straight sci-fi or year 1000 stuff, uh, no. No, don't want that. Uh, Damien continues, I have to wax lyrical about Rod Reese again. He is a genuine artistic genius. I loved the entire issue. Yeah, Rod Reese is... He's ridiculous. Oh, he's wonderful. Just so great and such a such a perfect fit for this book. Love it. Love it. Uh, Damien says, I felt bad hearing you say you were looking forward to reading issue three to see if you like Deathbird for once. I wonder if your reaction to issue three will reflect mine. <laughs> I, I guess we'll see pretty soon. I'm, I'm very curious as to your reaction, and I'm also wondering... If I need to get my umbrella out, I don't know if any shoes are going to drop next issue. So we'll we'll find out together. Um, your spoiler-free references to X of Swords referenced old Captain Britain. To be honest, most of what I saw in X of Swords used what Claremont built on top of Moore's foundations. Of all things, Fall of the Mutants was a key part of the jigsaw. I would agree that I've clearly missed stuff because of not reading Excalibur, but I was impressed that Hickman and Howard explained a lot of the story so far. This is something we don't see very often in modern Marvel, and may just be because the pandemic delayed the story, so they thought readers might have forgotten elements. The only thing that confused me was that Pepe Larraz drew Saturnine as identical to how he drew Emma Frost in Hoxpox. The fact that Saturnine exclusively wears white really didn't help. And yes, a few points there. Uh, first, Saturnine. Ugh. <laughs> Saturnine is another one of those characters that kind of bore me. But, uh... I'm happy to hear that they do a little bit of a refresher here. Um, one of the things about um, House of X Dawn, House of X Powers of X, that I said uh, as we were wrapping it up was that I felt it could be an evergreen uh, in the X Men library. You know, something that people can come back to even after this era passes, even after the next three or four eras passed. Hox Pox will remain, I believe, as an evergreen. Dawn of X? Maybe not so much. Uh, Maybe X of Swords, if they are doing stuff where they are refreshing or jogging our memories a bit, perhaps that speaks to them looking at it as potentially an evergreen. Um, It might be too long to be an evergreen at like, you know, 300 parts, but I I mean, baby steps. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. Um, Or, of course, it could just be the pandemic. Um, I remember putting in a pre-order for some of the early uh, X of Swords stuff. Boy, very, very long time ago. And uh, everything got pushed, as you know, as everything did. But uh, I'm happy to hear that they do catch us up, um, because uh, I'm dense. I'm very dense. So <laughs> if, they, if, if any help they give me, I will take. But uh, I am interested to see... Um, you know, fall of the mutants. I mean, I, I, that, I think that could be an interesting thing to uh, touch on and further instills that in this post hoxpox landscape that everything actually happened, which makes me happy. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I bet you're really enjoying rereading the Marvel UK Captain Britain. It's fascinating to see the development of Moore and Davis in those first stories. Moore moves from a Claremont copyist to a unique voice, and Davis goes from sketchy to accomplished in a very short period of time. I hope you do have time to produce something for us about these books. You're right to focus on the effectiveness of the Fury storyline. The creeping fear and dread the two Allens evoke still gets me every time I read it. Masterful. And yes, oh boy, um, yeah, the Fury is scary. 
I love it. I love it. And um, I am putting something together. Uh, I've got a few things that I'm trying to cook up. I'm trying to do something of a new fall season for this channel. Um, you know, X-Lapsed isn't going anywhere. That'll still be as often as I can do it. Um, and actually, with this very episode here, um, for folks who were listening live or on the day it came out, uh, this episode hits on September 30th, which marks one complete calendar month of daily podcasting here at the channel. Uh, we started uh, with House of X number one on September 1st, so uh, it was a test. It was a personal test to see if I could do it, and I'm, I'm happy to say I could. And, and it's uh, I don't know if it's something to be terribly proud of, but I'm happy I did it. <laughs> So, uh, but X-Lapsed will be, uh, will definitely loom large here at the channel, but there are other projects in the, uh, in the works. Um, and as I mentioned, I believe last episode, uh, I am working on putting together the books club with, uh, with some friends and, uh, Fallen Angels. I actually tracked it down in my, uh, my guest bedroom, which looks like, it kind of looks like, uh, like a, like a Tetris board threw up. It's just boxes every which way, and it's very, very hard to navigate. Um, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm walking with like a, I'm walking on a minefield with those tennis racket shoes. You know, I'm always afraid I'm gonna step on something. But I did manage to track down my run of Fallen Angels from the '80s. So we're gonna put that together for a books club. Um, got a bunch more stuff in the works. And uh, I think it's going to be a pretty exciting time for the channel. Uh, a lot of a lot of fun stuff planned, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But uh, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Um, I want to thank Damien for reaching out. I want to thank every thank everyone for listening and reaching out. And uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at Gmail dot com. Um, I'm also reactivating, or maybe not reactivating, but I'm actually just starting to use again. The Cosmic Treadmill uh, Twitter. That's Cosmic T-Mill on Twitter, and that's basically going to be used for the archives. I'm trying to keep keep some of the old audio in circulation and uh, have it set to put out a few a few tweets a day to just you know maybe maybe meet some people that we didn't know, maybe introduce some folks to some stuff we talked about uh, today. Uh, I. That you decide, the Marvel you decide stunt. I, I I retweeted that there, so a lot of fun stuff that'll be coming out through there. Um, you can find the show notes and all the stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. The Xlapsed page is xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X Men, and of course the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Uh, one more huge thank you to everybody. Uh, thank you for helping me get through September 2020 every single day. Um, it really, really means a lot to me. It's hard to even put it into words. Um, and I know that might sound sarcastic, but I assure you it's not. Uh, thank you all. It is most appreciated. It means the world to me. Um, but until next time, I will uh, talk to you all again real soon. See ya. See ya.